Welcome to Open Work, a look inside the watch industry, a podcast from Collective Horology. I'm Asher Apkin, co-founder of Collective. And I'm Gabe Riley, co-founder of Collective. On today's show, we're going to take a deep dive into how watches are priced, the logic behind it, how a watch can become profitable, what some accessories cost and why, and a perspective on how to evaluate pricing yourself when considering a watch, either as a retailer or as a consumer. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, pricing has been one of those things that's a hot button topic perennially in the watch world. And I think in the last couple of years in particular, it's been particularly relevant. Factors like inflation, supply constraints, demand, labor constraints, currency fluctuations, all these things have really conspired to put watch pricing sort of under the microscope. And so today I'm happy to say we have the perfect guest to discuss all of this stuff with us. It's Mike Margolis. Mike is the owner of Horology Works. And if you've spent any time in the independent watch world here in the United States, you've likely met Mike or come across him on Instagram. He goes by the Watch Enabler. And over the last few years, Mike has been responsible for building and representing a number of independent brands in the U.S. He launched and managed Moser during its meteoric rise from the mid-2010s until 2021. He currently represents Chapex, Speak Marin, and Singer here in the U.S. And full disclosure, we are retailers of both Chapek and of Speak Marin, and so we work closely with Mike. And before striking out on his own and starting Horology Works, Mike was the U.S. president of Gerard Perigo and the U.S. sales director for Hublot. So really, I can't imagine anyone more qualified to speak on this stuff. Mike, welcome to Open Work. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be with you guys. I know you've only done a couple episodes in the so far, but I, I just want to say I love the fact that you guys are talking the business side of watches and not just talking about the watches like every other watch podcast out there. So bravo. Well, thank you for that. And I think that that's kind of what we're aiming for here, which is why we're going to dive right in. I'm going to state something really obvious. Watches are objectively very expensive. But before we get into the nitty gritty, one of the things I'd love to ask you is how you, as somebody who is a long, long-serving watch industry executive, defines value in the context of watches. When you are thinking about this from, from a leadership position, how do you think about value, both as a brand representative and also as a collector, as I know you have a pretty uh, impressive collection yourself? You know, how... How can we decide if something is worth it? That's really an intensely personal question. I mean, for me, the last watch I bought was a Singer Reimagined 1969 timer. It's 30,000 Swiss francs, 35,000 US dollars, worth every penny to me. But a lot of people would tell me I'm a lunatic for buying that watch. I mean, I could buy two Rolex gold day dates for that money. So I don't know. It's worth it for me. Probably 99 people out of 100 would rather have the two gold day dates instead. But that's, you know, that's why Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors, right? Well, what you're, what you, yeah, exactly. What you're, what you're hitting on too, I think is a, is a point that comes up regularly in conversations that, you know, that we have with clients. And I think that I just personally came to realize a little while ago, which is, you know, looking for holistic value in a watch is often a very difficult thing to do because, of course, these these objects don't have intrinsic value. You know, they're, they're art, so they have value that we that we essentially project onto them. 
And often I think about, and I'm curious your point of view on this too, where the value lies in a particular watch. So I'll give you an example. One brand that we retail, James Lamb, you know, there is a relatively uh, straightforward movement in there, Salita SW200, but the handwork of the case is where the value lies in that watch. So I'm curious when you are looking at either a watch that's coming down the pipe from a maker that you represent or you personally, I mean, do you think about where the value lies in a watch? Is there a different uh, method that you use to evaluate or is it really purely emotional? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I'm the guy who buys with his heart and not with his head. I sure, I, I like everybody, when you're spending your own money, you're, you, you have some sort of a, is it worth it calculation in your head? But really for me, it's, I don't buy for resale. I do sell a few things along the way, but really I buy and I hold stuff. And I'm more concerned with, am I going to love this watch five years down the road, 10 years down the road than I am if I flip this six months from now, how much am I going to lose? How much am I going to gain? I just don't care about that. Well, it it was nice getting to know Mike Margolis, the enthusiast and collector, but let's take a different perspective on this because you are one of the people quite literally in the room when brands are making decisions about how to price watches. So I'm kind of curious from your, your industry perspective, how you think about pricing watches. And one of the things you've mentioned to both me and Asher is this notion of price factors. There are different factors and things that drive pricing for watch brands and are inputs into decisions they make about how to form the price on a watch. So I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through the big factors that brands are considering when they're working to determine what the retail price of a watch should be. Well, it's interesting you use that word factor because the brands use the word factor for something different. The factor is their multiplication factor that goes from their raw cost of the watch to retail, whatever, you know, pick a number, every brand is different. But they will use that word factor to talk about this watch cost us X. We're normally going to multiply it by our factor and come up with a retail price. And then they'll adjust that upwards or downwards depending on the market. But so there's that factor. But I, I think you're more talking about the factors of, I don't know, is this brand going to have a better resale value down the road than that brand? What's the retail price? These are the things that we as collectors think about before we pull the trigger on a watch. For me, I think the question was maybe the the better word is inputs. What are the inputs that go into the pricing of a watch, right? So off the top of my head, I'm, I'm guessing things like, you know, there's supply costs for components and materials, there are labor costs, there may be marketing costs associated with a watch, that's an input to the cost. So I guess that's more what I'm what I'm asking. When a brand thinks about how they're going to price a watch and what it costs them to maybe create and market and, and, and bring a watch to market, what are the things that really drive pricing? I think Asher's example was a good one. A lot of times as collectors, what, what we think is like, oh, well, this watch 
probably only costs X amount of money to make. It has an ETA movement or it has an in-house movement or it has a gold case. We really think about the the product intrinsics themselves as components of cost, but probably, I'm guessing, aren't thinking about a lot of the other things that brands are thinking about in terms of what are their inputs to pricing the watch. Sure. I mean, as business owners, we understand that there's a lot more to our cost than just the cost of that thing that we're selling. You look at a watch brand, they've got marketing people on staff, they've got product development people on staff. There are so many things that go into the cost of a watch that you can't just look at the cost of the bracelet and the movement and the case and the crystal and the strap and the buckle and all of those things that actually make the watch because you've also got the cost of the CEO and the vice president of sales and how much does it cost to ship that watch and the the duty to move it from one country to another. All of those things have to factor into the retail price so that the brand can make enough money to continue on for another day and another week and another year. This is, you guys are hitting on something which is admittedly a little bit of a hobby horse for me, but I think is important to consider as we look at at this overall function. You mentioned just now, you know, built into the price of a watch is, you know, the the, the operational reality, right? Assembly, design, production, the staffing reality. And one of the, what this really bears out to me is another rubric in which we can, through which we can analyze watch pricing, which is watches, like essentially everything else that we buy, isn't and can't be evaluated as the sum of its parts. And we see this coming up in the watch world all the time, where someone will say, you know, that that watch shouldn't cost that because I did a little bit of light Googling and someone somewhere said that an SW200 movement is $200. So how could I possibly pay $2,500 for a watch with an SW200 movement? I'm being ripped off. And this sentiment is all over the internet. Sure. One thing that I think people, and this is where I'd love your point of view here too, is I I don't know that everyone always considers the the human effort, time, and compensation that goes into the development creation of a watch. So if a Salida movement, let's say, costs $200 to make, or for that matter, an Agenor movement costs $8,000 at wholesale, there's still, like, throughout that chain, part of the reason those costs are what they are, I suspect is the compensation for the people who developed, came up with them, own the own the intellectual property, and ultimately are attempting to make a living off of it. So if you're buying a $3,000 watch, maybe the price factor, let's say, is 5X, I'm making that up. But if that's the case, built into that price factor is essentially families being fed off of the creative work. And that has to be built in. Because I, I, I have a reaction when I hear like, oh, the vice president got paid off the watch. Like, oh, God, how much do they make? I'm like, well, they deserve to make whatever they make. And you get to decide as a consumer what you're willing to pay for. And I'm curious, um, you know, that's my point of view. I'm curious for yours. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. We can't look at the value of anything as the sum of its parts. I'm not a car guy, but I think if you priced out the spare parts of a $50,000 BMW 3 Series, it would probably be two or $300,000 if you were to buy that car by the spare parts. So you, you can't look at it that way. The cost of whatever the buckle on the watch is the labor to put it in the envelope, 
there's $100 to ship that buckle to the United States. It clears customs. Then I ship it to Collective out in California. That's another $50. I mean, there's so much that goes into the cost of a watch that has nothing to do with the cost of the parts. And that's true for every business out there. Which I think comes back to another question which often comes up, especially when we look at brands that lean very heavily into this. So I'm going to I'm going to pick on a brand just uh, just because it's a good example. Let's look at Richard Meal. Richard Meal spends I, I think you could make the same argument if you want to be an equal opportunity offender here. We could look at Omega. You know, both both Richard Meal and Omega relative to their um, to their overall revenue spend a significant amount of money on marketing. And a lot of that is also tied up in brand ambassadors and whatever compensation is given to brand ambassadors. So I'd love to, to get into that a little bit, because this is another area where people are interested in terms of how, how the business considers evaluating these costs. So I'm wondering, can, one, if you've had any experience working with a brand ambassador, I'm curious to understand how people consider or brands consider allocating funds and budget for that and how that's evaluated against, because all of that comes back into a fundamental cost of a watch. And the second question would be, do marketing budgets specifically tie to specific launches or are marketing budgets spent across the entire year for most of the brands that you've worked with? Because all of these, I think, are questions that people wonder like, oh, I'm paying $8,000 for the Speedmaster. How much of that is for the quote marketing? And I'm just wondering how these thoughts are evaluated inside the walls of a watch company. Sure. I mean, I can go back to when I worked at Hublot or when I worked at Gerard Perigo, the 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 factory, the Swiss company, had their own marketing budgets. Today, I saw a picture on Instagram of the president of Hublot, and he was standing next to Diego Maradona and Pele, right? Now, these are two of the most famous football or soccer players ever, anytime, anywhere. And let's be honest, it costs something to have those guys come to your event. It costs something for them to lend their name to your brand. And there are people who couldn't care less about football. And there are people who are going to go, man, if Maradona's in on that watch, I'm in on that watch. And, and so that's part of the, the national, excuse me, the international marketing budget as far as the local marketing budget goes. When I worked at Gerard Perigo, we had a budget every year and we could spend that on whatever we wanted to. We could spend not whatever we wanted to. It had to be approved, but you were going to do events. You were going to do dinners with dealers. You were going to do whatever it might be, advertising in Departures Magazine at $50,000 a page, whatever, whatever it might be. But there was always a local market advertising budget as well. And let's be honest, all of those things, the cost of putting Maradona on a plane from Argentina to Switzerland, and you know he doesn't fly in coach, you know, that all comes into the cost of the watch. And the brands that spend more doing that are going to have a higher factor in order to get to their retail price. I deal with independent brands who are very stingy because they have to be on doing events and and you know flying people first class from Argentina. Chopic can't afford that, Singer can't afford that. They're small brands. 
listening to what you're saying, I'm trying to evaluate this from both the perspective of the pragmatist and the cynic. You know, if I were to take the, the cynical perspective, you know, I would imagine there's, there's a lot of folks out there like, well, I don't want that. Like, I don't care, right? Like, who cares if I'm standing next to Pele or if I'm standing next to whoever? But if you, if you flip that and you look at it from the pragmatic standpoint, you could also say, well, if demand drives uh, a value, so to speak, and in this, in this context, I'm defining value uh, from, a, from a financial standpoint, if demand drives value, then you know, watch pricing being slightly higher when some of that money is spent on marketing to drive demand actually may preserve some value in the secondary market and in the primary market too. So it's a kind of it's a little bit of of a backwards way of thinking about it. But to a certain degree, I guess the theory would be by putting Brad Pitt on a poster for Breitling, that drives demand. That demand may you know that that, that watch may be incrementally more expensive because of whatever Brad Pitt's rider and contract may be, but that demand, hopefully, if it works successfully, will retain some of the value of the watch. And maybe you could have gotten the watch for $500 less had that marketing not been allocated or that budget not been allocated. But the presumption there is that those two things are interlinked. Am I characterizing that accurately? Yeah, I, I think so. Again, I'm not the sort of person who cares one bit what kind of watch Daniel Craig is wearing. And I'm not the guy who goes, oh, look, he's got a Speedmaster on. I better go buy one. But there are people who are like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. And bringing those guys into a brand is effective. If it weren't effective, they wouldn't do it. There's a reason why Roger Federer wears a Rolex. And it's not because he likes Rolex. It's because they pay him a lot of money and give him a lot of watches to wear a Rolex. And obviously, Rolex feels like that's a good value for their advertising dollar. I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I sort of look at it, Mike, in a very similar way. And Asher, it's, it's very different from the way you are, you are framing it. I view someone like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Daniel Craig, and, 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 and or James Bond. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I just happen to be wearing a Bond Seamaster. That was a watch that that's the watch that got me into watches. I'm wearing the you know 1990s Pierce Brosnan blue wave dial Seamaster. That got me into watches. And I think th- that's sort of my point, which is I don't actually know that these endorsements are necessarily driving up the cost of a watch. They may actually be driving down the cost of a watch. And here's why. These endorsements and putting, putting these watches into popular culture if done successfully, if the marketing is successfully done successfully, it helps the brand reach a certain level of scale. And with that certain level of scale become economies of scale, right? So the more Seamasters Omega is able to reasonably produce and, and meet the demand for, they're going to have economies of scale and that may actually help them better amortize those costs and drive the cost down. So one could argue if Omega had never invested in the James Bond franchise, had the Seamaster not become something of a cultural phenomenon, that may be a more expensive watch because they're producing fewer of them at, at lower cost. Obviously, the marketing investment has to work, and that's a risky proposition. But I think it, it, this is very related to a, a question about price inputs, Mike, that, that I have, which is around brand. You know, Brand and marketing are sort of intertwined. One is they're, they're functions of each other. But I think very intuitively, 
we all know whether we work inside a watch brand, we work in the industry, or we're consumer, we we know that different brands have different levels of strength. You know, some brands are quote stronger than others. Whether that's they're more desirable, they're more top of mind, they're they're perceived in particular ways. They have certain equities or values associated with them. At the watch, at the watch manufacturers, at the brands themselves, how do they think about the quote strength of their brand as an input into pricing? Well, I mean, it's super important. As soon as you said that, I started thinking about a Rattrapont chronograph. Now, forgive me if I explain this to people who may not know, but a Rattrapont is a chronograph that actually has two chronograph second hands that start at the same time and you can stop one and let the other one keep going. Imagine two runners starting the race at the same time and you can stop one hand when one guy finishes the race and stop the other hand when the other guy finishes the race. So if we look at a Rattrapont, and there are not that many companies that make Rattraponts, but a, a Patek Rattrapont is about $300,000. A Jorn Rattrapont is about $100,000. The Chapek Rattrapont is about $50,000, $60,000. And Breitling makes one for like ten or 15000 So there's a huge difference in the finishing and I don't want to trivialize the labor costs. But at the same time, you can buy a Breitling for ten dollars or $15,000, and you're going to spend 10 times that for the Jorn. You're going to spend 30 times that for the Patek. A lot of it is the finishing, no question. But a lot of it is just that Patek knows they're strong, and if they put one out at three hundred grand, people will buy it. In fact, They'll stand in line for it, and they'll have to apply for the privilege of buying that watch. So, sure, the the, the brand, that intel, intangible part of the brand, contributes a lot to the pricing. Patek can get three hundred, so they're going to. If they could get five hundred, they would. Again, trying to play the role of the cynic and the pragmatist, you know, in my head. It, <laughs> cynically, you, I can see people. You know, and and my immediate reaction to that is like, you know, man, that's that's really frustrating. However, of course, as we all know, like the function of a watch is is as as you described across all price categories. Like we could get really specific, right? I mean, when you look at the Breitling chronograph, it's a module. You know, it's not a fully integrated chronograph. But then we could also do that in the opposite, which is to say, well. A lot of those paddock uh, chronographs, they're not really finished to, you know, by, by the magical Keebler watchmaking elves in the same way that I think they like to market the story of that. In fact, one might argue that less expensive independent watches are more, you know, have more human hands touching them. Flip side of that is, does that matter? Which is a much larger rhetorical question from a collecting standpoint. But the insight that you're bringing up, I think, is a really valuable one, you know, especially when people think about you know, pricing of independent watches in particular, because I want to get to, I want to get to a second element, which is related to this, which is supply chain and access to parts. One thing that Paddock has is that Paddock obviously, and, and Rolex is a much better example of this. They're manufacturing the vast majority of their parts. So they don't run into situations where they're ordering things one, two, 10, 20 at the time. Keeping with your example of Chapek as a brand, you know, the Rochepont chronograph is 
you know, an incredible, an incredible piece of mechanical engineering, but you guys are making 50 at a time, I believe, right? So you're ordering much fewer components than other companies, which may in fact make those components, correct me if I'm wrong, more expensive because the quantities aren't there in the same way that they would be for a paddock or a Breitling or whatever. So the price factor might be lower. You might be getting more handwork and the brand may be absorbing more costs because it is more exclusive, which is also sort of an inversion of the way I think a lot of people think about this. Am I characterizing that accurately? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to look at, like you said earlier, you have to look at scale. Chopek does some in-house manufacturing, just to use them as an example, but they don't do their dials. Their dials come from a couple of very famous dial manufacturers, either Donze Kadran or a company called Metalem. And you have to remember, like you said, maybe Chopek's ordering their dials 50 at a time or 100 at a time. And I don't know that this is true, but maybe Omega or Patek uses the same people and they're going to order their dials 500 or 1,000 at a time. And so there, there's two things that are going to happen. The first thing is they're probably going to get a better price on their dial because they're buying 10 times as many. And they're probably going to get pushed to the front of the production line when Mr. Stern calls and says, I need 1,000 dials. He's going to get them a lot faster than, I don't know, the Gronfelds who call and say, I need 10 dials or I need 20 dials. And I'm just pulling names out of the air. I have no idea if those guys use the same dial manufacturers that Chopek does. But the case is, is correct based on the scale. Yeah, I mean, we see this when we, when we did the uh, P2 with Urwerk, for example, and some folks were saying, I don't, like, that's $62,500. Whew, that's, that's a lot of money. And and objectively, of course, it is. But one of the things that I always found really fascinating about like Urwerk, by way of example, is if you look at the case architecture of, of an Urwerk watch, it's incredibly intricate. This isn't, you know, the cases are not, this is not an off-the-shelf purchase by any means. Right. And they're doing them in, in runs of 25. Maybe they're buying an extra five or 10 for service or what have you, but but that's it. So the cost of that case is incrementally more expensive than a more traditional case. And the time it takes to to really build that into the CNC machine, to have that milled accurately, the tooling that goes into that, et cetera. It's, it's a not inconsiderable, inconsiderable cost. And it's definitely something that I'm sure comes in as an element of, of pricing. Um, I'm going to take this to a slight different place, though. So we've talked a little bit about how various different elements come in, right? So we've looked at supply chain, we've looked at brand, we've looked at marketing. There's another element that goes into the pricing of watches, which I think is a bit mysterious to a lot of people, and that's margin. And that's how much money we as a retailer um, put up to purchase inventory and um, what percentage of a watch specifically goes to us. And um, this is a hot topic. You know, I think a lot of consumers think about that as a component that can and, and should be negotiated away. Um, you know, even though this is how Gabe and I make our living, I'm not going to pretend like I'm over negotiating for a car when I buy it. So I completely understand that. But I also would see when I walk into a dealership, for example, the hundreds of cars on the lot, the building, the staff, you know, the the coffee machine, like all of that, all of that's built in. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit 
we don't have to get into like explicit numbers, but if you could talk a little bit in into how brands think about retailer margin and how that figures in as one, a price factor in the way that you described it, and also what the role of the retailer is and why a brand compensates them to the degree that they do with margin. The retailer has the cost of his space, the cost of his insurance, the cost of his security. Somebody paid for all those showcases in the store when you walk in. He's got safes in the back that you probably don't see. He's got an alarm system and he's got a, a security guard and all the duty to import those watches into the United States or whatever country he's in. The Obviously. So the retailer, when you walk in the store and you see a watch that's uh, let's just say $10,000, and you somehow think that he pays, I don't know what, $7,000 for that watch, and you say to him, well, I'm going to give you 7500 bucks for it, take it or leave it. He He's losing money at that. He has all these costs in the background that you, you kind of know about because somebody who's spending $10,000 on a watch is most likely a successful businessman and one sense or another. So he understands the costs that are involved. But at the same time, nobody wants to overpay. And when I buy a car, you want to get them down to the lowest possible price you can. But, you know, you do have to understand that the retailer has a huge amount of background costs. And then he's probably got seven, eight figures worth of inventory in his store, especially if he's selling jewelry too. He's got a pocket full of diamonds. You know, it's easy to spend a million dollars on a diamond today. So if we, if we say, I, I don't know, I'm just pulling this number out of the air because I'm not a retailer, but the typical retailer's got $10 million worth of inventory in his store. Now, just doing some quick math in my head, 5% savings account, you take that $10 million and five years down the road, he's probably got 13 million. So if he just sells all his stuff and closes his store and takes that money, you know, he's going to make decent money just on interest. So the retailer better be making money. If he's not making money, then he should sell his store and stay in bed. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. You know, I can I was thinking about this actually last night as I was getting ready for the show and I realized like I know plenty of retailers who have larger staff and likely larger overhead than a number of of watch brands and certainly independent brands the watch brands we we carry and uh, you know their their payroll is bigger the cost of their office their their store their real estate is probably going to be more expensive than even that of a, of a of a watch manufacturer because of course you know they've got prime real estate on Madison Avenue, Madison Avenue in New York, or Beverly Hills in in Los Angeles, whatever whatever it might be, and they've got a, a very expensive build out of of their store. Oftentimes, uh, in the case of the major brands, they're not really compensated for those build outs. They're just expected to have that build out as just a cost of doing business and carrying those those brands. So when you think about the the proportion of of retailer margin relative to to brands, very quickly you start to wonder if if retailers are are discounting because Asher you're you're right. I mean the first the first target and 
we're all guilty of this. I've been guilty of this, whether it's with a watch retailer or with a car dealership or whatever. But the first place we target in terms of the price of a watch is a retailer margin. And you start to wonder uh, at a certain point, how anyone makes <laughs> any money any money doing this. And I guess, I guess that leads me to another a related question. And Mike, you, you know this truism, this old chestnut quite well, which is the fastest way to become a millionaire in the watch industry is to start as a billionaire. Which is which is to say, the watch industry, I think because these are luxury goods, they're very expensive goods. There's a and also because of the way the watch industry and watch brands market themselves, they project success and luxury and and the good life and all this sort of stuff. Because of because of all of that, there's this perception that this is an extremely profitable business. And the the fact is the 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 luxury world the watch world in particular has a graveyard of failed businesses and i i think one question might be and you know when considering pricing is the risk that brands and that others in this ecosystem in the luxury watch industry are are taking i mean from from your perspective is and maybe i'm making this up is this a risky business and what are the risks in the business? What drives? What are the things that lead to failure in the commercial failure in this in this business? Because I think that risk taking is an important price component to think about. When you think about restaurants, for instance, everyone knows restaurants are really risky. Most go out of business, and that's part of the reason why what's on the table is as expensive as it is. Of course, it costs much more to eat at a restaurant than to dine in at home. And a big part of that is because of the risk involved and the cost involved in that industry. So I'm sort of wondering, what's the watch industry perspective we should be aware of in terms of commercial failure and how that relates to pricing? Well, look, for sure, there are brands that have gone out of business. We can name a bunch of them. Romain Jerome went out of business. HYT went out of business and they came back again. MCT went out of business. It's not a guarantee that you're going to start a watch brand and, you know, put a million bucks a year in your pocket because it, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a compelling product. You have to have a compelling story. You have to have a good way to sell the watch, to bring it to market. And all of those things are expensive. So it's not a guarantee. I'll give you a quick example, maybe a little off topic, but when I started with Hublot in 2008, and I think we all remember what happened in 2008. But when I started in 2008, Jean-Claude Beaver was my direct boss. And he said to me, I want to have a boutique on Madison Avenue. And so I contacted a New York City real estate agent. We went, looked at retail spaces. And to me, the best two blocks in all of New York City were Madison between 62nd and 64th. Hermes is there. It's just like the prime real estate space. And, you know, to get a nice 1,000, 1,500 square foot space is going to run you somewhere around $200,000 a month, a month. And that's just rent. That's not a $3 million build out. That's not all the other costs that we talked about insurance and everything else. And I came back to Jean-Claude and I said, dude, this isn't worth it. I can't, I'm a numbers guy. I can't make a business model where this makes sense. And he laughed at me. And this is where Beaver's such a genius. He laughed at me and he said, 
how much would it cost to get a two-story, 20-foot-wide billboard on Madison Avenue? And I said, well, I mean, you couldn't. There isn't such a thing. But if there was, I'm sure it would be, I don't know, fifty dollars or $100,000 a month. And he said, now let's take that billboard and put a door on it and let people walk in and see our product. And I said, well, okay, I get that. But if we're going to lose money on the boutique every month, because how can you possibly sell enough product? I don't care what brand you are. How can you sell enough product to justify the $2 million cost of rent and overhead and all that other stuff? And then he said to me, well, we just write it off as a marketing expense. And, you know, brands, some brands can afford to do that. Some brands cannot afford to do that. When I started Gerard Perigo, we had a boutique on Madison in that block and the rent was 103000 a month. And my first suggestion to my CEO was that we close the boutique because we couldn't, the break-even point was $5 million a year. We couldn't sell $5 million a year in Gerard Perigo at retail in that space. And they came back at me and they said, Do, you know, we don't want to be the first ones to close the boutique. We'll look so bad. Eventually, they did close the boutique. But, you know, that's just another, that's another part of it. It's not. It's not a walk in the park to make money selling watches. So we've, we've looked at brand, we've looked at risk, we've looked at supply chain, we've looked at a number of different elements that go into pricing a watch. And one of the last questions I want to ask you here goes back to something just anecdotal in a former career. Uh, when I was in college and right after I graduated from college, actually Gabe briefly worked with me as well at a, a, little, little, a little store in New York City called TechServe, which was an independent Apple store. And one of the things that I learned there is that in the tech industry, <clears throat> so selling, you know, uh, Macs basically, there's not much margin on computers and printers. In fact, printers in particular have uh, abysmal margins. You're looking at something like 5 to 10%. It's, it's comically low. However, in order, to, in order to, to have a $100 printer back in 2002, you needed a USB cable. Now, you, now the printer, you know, maybe you were lucky if you made any money on that. You're probably losing money on it, frankly. But the cable, was a 27.5x markup. You would buy it, you know, TechServe would buy it for 75 cents and sell it to you for $22, $21. And that was, you know, almost, almost a quarter of a century ago. I think there is a perception in watch world that it's the same thing, right? If I'm going to go into a store and I say, you know what, I'm going to take that Antarctique and uh, I want you to throw in that $975 strap kit because it's a piece of plastic and you probably make $974 on the whole thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about accessory cost? One of my brands charges $750 US for a rubber strap kit, which includes the deployant buckle and includes the proprietary connectors to connect that, watch, that strap to the watch. And $750 for a rubber strap seems ridiculous. But when you go to the rubber strap manufacturer in Italy and you say to them, I want to make a rubber strap for my watch, and this is the design that I want for the outside, and this is the design that I want for the inside, he's going to tell you, okay, that's no problem, but we're going to make a mold for that rubber strap. And we pour the hot rubber into the mold and squish it down or whatever they do. And that mold costs $50,000. 
$50,000. And that's why you'll see that most brands don't make a short rubber strap and a regular length rubber strap and a long rubber strap. They make a rubber strap because the cost is so high to have a rubber strap. So again, these are the things that you see that you don't see in the background. All you see is what a rip off those guys are charging me $750 for a strap that costs 25 bucks. That's I had never even considered the mold thing and it it, it makes it makes perfect sense. I I think I'd like to end on a topic that's perhaps like the most outside of anyone's control of all the things we just discussed discussed like you know you make a decision to buy a rubber strap or or to make a rubber strap or not in in this case the topic i want to talk about is exchange rates like no one has any choice really maybe except a couple of you know central bankers and the illuminati but no one really has any any control over exchange rates at all but yet Watches are an international business, and certainly Swiss watches, in this case coming to the U.S., but going anywhere around the world, it's an international business. And so exchange rates can play a huge role in watch pricing, and they certainly did in the last few years where here, in our case, the dollar gained strength. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit about how exchange rates, uh, rates impact watch pricing and kind of and why and what goes on behind the scenes as exchange rates uh, fluctuate? Sure, let's let's talk about that. So first off, most of the high-end watch companies that we're talking about are based in Switzerland, and Switzerland does not use the euro; they use the Swiss franc. They're actually not part of the European Union. So they have their own currency. Obviously, if you're buying a German watch, then it's going to be bought in euros. But but the same things are true about exchange rates. Let me talk about almost one year ago, February of 2023, last year, the U.S. dollar to the Swiss franc exchange rate was 1.06. 11 months, 10 months later, in December of last year, it was 119. So that's a 13% difference. Right now we're at about 115. So what that means is it takes at 115, it takes 11,500 US dollars to pay for a watch that costs 10,000 Swiss francs. Last year in February, you would have needed 10,600 instead of today's 11,500. So if the brand established their USA price list in February at 106 or 107, and today we're at 115, what that means is they're accepting 8 or 9% less today from an American customer to buy to sell that watch than they did a year ago. So if you were a brand and it's going to cost you, you're going to make 9% less today than you did in February of last year, you have three choices. You can sell the watch to someplace else in the world where your margin may be better and you deliver less watches to the U.S. You can raise your USA prices or you can live with making less money on every watch that you send to the U.S. And of course, this is true in any market. So raising prices is hard. You only make friends with the customer who just bought his watch at the old price but you anger the client who's about to buy it, or worse, 
he's been waiting a year for his watch based on the price being X, and now it's 1.1X. He's mad at you. So uh, currency fluctuations are big business in the background. Some brands will sell their watches only in Swiss francs and put that 8% delta onto the retailer. They're going to get their Swiss francs no matter what the fluctuation. This makes it hard on the retailer, though, because do you guys price the watch based on what you bought it at or what it would cost you to replace it when you sell it? How frustrating it is for the customer when he calls one store and they tell him the watch is 10000 He calls another store and they tell him it's ten five, And he just feels like he's being lied to or cheated. And I mean, again, these are things that the typical customer who walks into a watch store has no idea about. They just knows, well, they're telling me ten five, but when I called those guys across the country, they told me the watch was ten thousand. So this is really tricky business, and there's never a good way to raise prices. Lowering prices is even harder. That makes everybody mad at you. And unfortunately, it's a big part of our business. So I do want to talk just a moment here about currency fluctuation and just the, the reality of that as it relates to to the the retailer, you know, when we're looking at a margin and let's use 30% as an example of a margin, which, you know, is, is, is not out of ordinary, frankly. And we see a fluctuation in currency of say 8%. And then there's the import duty, you know, so let's add two, two to 3%. So we'll call that just an even 10%. The currency fluctuation and the duties now have consumed one third of the gross profit margin of that watch. And that's not even counting the depreciation or lack of access while, you know, customs or fish and wildlife sit on the box for 15 out of my net 30 days to pay for that invoice. So then I've even lost half of the time that I would have to sell the watch before I have to pay for it or watches, which is far more likely. Now, one option there is that the retailer could just have a market price, right? Where it's lobster and lobster is this much today and that much tomorrow. And it's just MP on the menu. but there, I think we can all understand why that that wouldn't functionally and rationally work in the industry. Or the other alternative is that the retailer just eats it, and you know that comes with a whole range of challenges too. So I guess my question for you is: Is there a solution for this? Boy, I don't think the watch industry anyway has figured out a solution yet. The only solution is to build a bunch of margin in. If the retail, excuse me, if the exchange rate is. 115, you know, maybe you price your price list at 120 or 125 so that if there is a fluctuation, it doesn't hurt you, but that hurts the customer every time they buy the watch. And, and that makes the watch, maybe it prices the watch out of the market where a customer is going to go, Ooh, that's too much money. I don't think I want to spend that on that watch. I'll buy a different watch instead. You mentioned import costs. You have to, you also have to know that somebody's paying duty to get the, every single watch into the United States. There's this lovely thing on crocodile straps called uh, CITES, C I T E S, stands for Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. And I need to, as an importer, I need to prove to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that that crocodile strap, that the the skin of the animal 
was farm raised and ethically killed. It wasn't uh, wild caught. And it cost me $206 for one to bring one crocodile strap into the United States. Now, the customer goes, come on, 750 bucks for a crocodile strap. You guys are ripping me off, right? And never mind the cost of the strap and the cost of the leather and the person who sews it together and finishes the edges by hand. I mean, I've got 200 bucks just in import, then the duty to pay on it, the $100 shipping to move that envelope from Switzerland to the United States. Yeah, you bet that strap is 750 bucks. And I know it's painful because I know how my, you know, what kind of belt I can buy or what kind of shoes I can buy for $750. But there's a lot going on in the background that the typical guy in the watch store does not understand. Well, Mike, I think the crocodile strap is probably the perfect metaphor and kind of the microcosm of everything we just talked about. All of all of the costs, seen and unseen. We cannot thank you enough for joining us today to chat about pricing. It has been utterly eye-opening. Well, that was an interesting conversation. And I mean, first of all, one of the things that I really appreciate about Mike is his willingness to be so open and transparent. You know, coming into the industry ourselves, you know, we figured out a lot of things by stepping on rakes, which is educational, but not fun. <laughs> and I think having, having Mike there to, you know, to bounce questions, uh, stupid or otherwise off was super helpful. And this topic is a really, a really important one to me because when I made the transition from pure enthusiast and collector directly into being a retailer, I think one of the one of the things that I realized very very quickly was my complete misunderstanding and misperception around watch pricing and what is reasonable and rational to ask from uh, authorized dealers. So I'm going to start with a blanket apology to every authorized dealer everywhere specifically in Terminal 3 of Heathrow, where I've been a very rough negotiator in the past. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been, I can, <laughs> I bore witness to some of that. Yeah. That yeah. Was, so, so quite, quite some moments of Asher negotiating watch prices. Yeah. <laughs> owning my, owning my own authorized dealership with Gabe is really a phenomenal proverbial kick in the karmic butt here. So I'm going to, I'm going to own that. That said, one of the things that I found most interesting in that conversation was a real look at what it takes to make money in the business and and how to be reasonable and rational. I think, you know, it's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction when you look at a price, for example, and say, I don't want to pay that. And by the way, you can stop right there and that's fine. Like there's nothing about that where anybody has to buy something. But I think it's useful when we evaluate and and we look at something with a cynical perspective and say, well, I don't want to pay that because it's not worth that. And that's where I think getting some of this context really helped. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that the analogy, and I'll take credit for a brilliant analogy, <laughs> but I think, you know, analogy that really resonates for me was, was this comparison to fine dining mm-hmm. in the sense that in fine dining, everyone expects a luxurious, elevated, special experience. Everyone understands that if they wanted to make a 
hamburger at home. It would be a lot cheaper or steak or whatever it, it might be. But everyone also understands what a cutthroat industry fine dining is and the notion that you know most restaurants fail. And frankly, behind the scenes, and certainly media has helped a lot with this in the last few years, behind the scenes, truly what an intense and cutthroat industry fine dining really is and what goes into creating that experience. Yeah, I watched The Bear. Like, I, yeah. I, I know about it now. Well, and I'm, <laughs> like, we're, we're not actually any kind of expert in any of this stuff, but things like The Bear or even Hell's Kitchen or whatever it might be certainly lift the veil, right? And help you understand, like, what's actually going into that $60 steak, right? And you can debate whether you want to pay for that and whether it's, quote, worth it, but you actually have some better understanding of it. And you can accept that both it's a very luxurious experience. But the business itself is also really intense and frankly, kind of a grind and risky. And in the watch industry, the watch industry does such a good job of marketing itself as you know luxurious and portraying an image of success and, and watches being tied up with success. They don't actually show you behind the scenes what a tough industry it really is. I think the other thing you and I have learned, you know, ourselves starting a business inside the watch industry, I think. We've been surprised, or at least I'll speak for myself, I've been surprised what a tough business it is. And I think a lot of those harsh realities, whether it's you could get caught off sides really badly on just currency conversion, for instance, a lot of those harsh realities are, are really what drive pricing in the watch industry the same way they, they do in kind of fine dining. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I want to flip this around too and just take the, the collector perspective for a moment and say... Everything that you just said is true, and so is the fact that a watch is $10,000, right? Yeah, and, and also all those things aren't really anyone else's problem except no. the industry themselves. Yeah, no. sure. So I, I think, you know, as we peel the curtain back on this, it's not to make anybody feel like they need to change their behavior per se. You know, if I walk into my local Rolex dealer and I want to sub and it's 10000 some odd dollars and currency fluctuation happened to put them in a bad spot, now they're not making their full margin, they're making their full margin less five, it's still $10,000 for me. And I think that's that's an important takeaway. One, one other element here, which I do think is important though, when you do walk into an authorized dealer, and this is a lesson that I really learned as we opened our doors, is you know what a lot of independent retailers really offer. Because if you think about it, you, know, you walk into an independent retailer, or in our context, you, you open up our safe, all of those watches are there because we believe in the, the brand and because we believe in those watches. We've assumed the financial liability and risk to hold those watches so that we can deliver them overnight to clients if they choose to invest in them. And that's a service. And when we think about where people get paid along the way, this was very eye-opening for me. You know, it's so easy to just sort of write something off in your head and be like, oh my God, that watch costs that because of the marketing. Well, you might not have known about it, but for the marketing. Or that, you know, like, oh, I don't want to pay the agent. Like, there's so many people in the supply chain. Well, those people offer value. Like the only reason that you might be able to receive a watch for it to even get through customs is the agent, you know, and the vice president, you know, again, easy to roll your eyes. There is no company without leadership. There's no company without the watchmaker. So every element of the price of a watch other than its raw materials provides additional value. And I go back to that, uh, that earlier point from the beginning of the show of, you know, value is highly subjective and where people find it is completely up to them. But I do think coming out of this conversation with Mike, one thing that, that did really resonate with me is there is value that is being delivered. Whether or not you want to buy it is a whole other question. 
it's an interesting one. I don't think there are any right answers here, and there's probably another show in this. And and I'd love for for folks to to give us any give us any suggestions, ideas, questions they'd like us to follow up on because I, I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface. So should we leave it there? Leave it there. Well, thanks for listening. To a podcast from Collective Horology. You can find us online at collectivehorology.com, and you can find our guest, Mike Margolis, online at horologyworks.com. You can also find him on Instagram at The Watch Enabler. And to get in touch with your questions, feedback, or suggestions, just email podcast at collectivehorology.com. <laughs>